from the newsroom of The Washington Post. This is Cleve Lutzen with The Washington Post. It's Ellen Nakashima with The Washington Post. This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Thursday, April 11th. Today, Julian Assange is arrested in London. The Asian Americans overlooked in the affirmative action debate and a historic opera performance. This is journalism. It's called conspiracy. It's conspiracy to commit journalism. So this has to end, and we urge everybody to support Julian Assange in, to, in fighting this extradition. So Julian Assange is an Australian hacker who's the founder of WikiLeaks. National security reporter Alan Nakashima has been covering the arrest of WikiLeaks founder Julian Assange. He founded the organization to expose secrets that could help shine a light on, on abuses. And he's gotten secret and classified documents from sources all over the world. Police have sought to arrest Assange for years, ever since he refused to cooperate with Swedish officials investigating him for sexual assault. That investigation was closed in 2017, but Assange remained wanted by British authorities for jumping bail. And all that time, he avoided capture by claiming asylum at the Ecuadorian embassy in London. But on Thursday, he was evicted and immediately arrested by London police. Assange's lawyer argued that he was being prosecuted in retribution for publishing classified information. Since 2010, we've warned that Julian Assange would face prosecution and extradition to the United States for his publishing activities with WikiLeaks. Unfortunately, today, we've been proven right. So the U.S. requested that he be extradited. What is he being extradited for? So shortly after his arrest, the Justice Department unsealed an indictment, which is dated from March 2018. And that indictment shows one count, single count of conspiracy to commit computer intrusion or basically to hack a computer. And in this case, it refers to a classified DOD, Defense Department computer that contained you know, information at a classified level relating to the military and military activities. So what he's being indicted for now is about that 2010 release of, of military documents. Yep, this indictment is in relation to the 2010 WikiLeaks releases, nothing to do with any interference or um, release of information related to the 2016 presidential election. So why is the U.S. requesting his extradition now? Prosecutors had wanted for years to try to make a case against Assange, but at least under the Obama administration, the Justice Department had been reluctant to to bring charges against Assange for fear of uh, running into what some prosecutors at the time called the New York Times problem or making the case that in charging him with publishing classified information, the same theory could also be applied to, say, the New York Times or the Washington Post, which would then make it difficult, some would say, for them not to prosecute, say, the, a newspaper for publishing classified information. And Assange, WikiLeaks, uh, his his lawyers, press advocates were strenuously arguing that charging Assange for 
publishing uh, classified information or leaked information could set a bad precedent uh, for freedom of the press and would mean that they were going down the road of, you know, opening up prosecutions of uh, traditional journalistic organizations. Interesting. So that if, in theory, if Assange was charged for releasing this information, then any journalist who obtains classified documents and releases them saying that it's part of the public good, that they could theoretically be prosecuted as well. Yeah, that that was – that's certainly the argument that Assange is, is making, continuing to make. And there was enough of a of a belief inside the Justice Department at the time that that would be a, a challenge that they refrained from, from bringing charges. However, what's interesting in this indictment is that the charge is actually conspiracy to, to hack – it's not a classical uh, you know, receipt of classified information or what they call national defense information type of charge, which is what you normally see in these sorts of cases. And I think that was done in, in an effort to try to get around that press freedom defense. And that's what we'll, we'll see this is going to play out over the next months or even years. You say that this indictment is specifically about that obtaining of information in 2010, those those military documents, classified military documents that ended up released to the public. But we've also been hearing a lot about WikiLeaks and its role in releasing uh, hacked emails from the DNC and John Podesta in 2016. Is there an expectation that if Assange is extradited, comes back to the U.S., that there could be more prosecution related to what happened in 2016? My understanding is that uh, right now the Justice Department basically has 60 days to put together an extradition package and submit it to the U.K. authorities through the State Department. And whatever is in that extradition package, whatever charges are in that package, are what it will have to bring Assange to trial on. It can't bring him back to the United States on computer hacking charges, and then slap a murder charge against him, for instance. So if we don't see charges relating to the 2016 elections coming up in the next 60 days or so, I don't think you'll see that become part of his prosecution. From what you're hearing, is there a sense that that is possible, that, that there could be more charges coming in those in the next couple of months? We don't know for sure. There are might be, uh, you know, we're looking into that right now to see if there are any additional charges. The case to be made uh, with respect to 2016, again, is difficult because of the journalistic organization issue. And you, if you're a prosecutor, want to try to avoid, I think, um, having to get over that hump or that defense where you're going to be forced to trying to make the distinction between a, a WikiLeaks and a journalistic organization like the Washington Post. What do you expect to see next in this case? A, a, a lengthy extradition process that could take at least a year, probably more. There have been other cases in the past that uh, went 10 years, 13 years before finally being resolved. One computer hacking case uh, was went 10 years before the authorities decided that the hacker, Gary McKinnon, should not be extradited to the U.S. So the U.S. lost on that one. 
There have been other cases that involve, say, high-profile terrorist suspects, where after 13 years, the authorities agreed to uh, extradite the defendant to the United States. So this isn't something that's going to be settled in the next few weeks. Ellen, thank you so much. Thank you. Ellen Nakashima covers national security for The Post. Okay. So my name is Robert Yang, and I go to Sacramento State University. I'm a second year over there, and uh, I major in recreational park tourism administration. Robert Yang is Hmong, an ethnic minority among Asian Americans. Growing up Hmong, I never knew I was poor because of the love the family had. Just kind of was like a uh, curtain that made me blinded from like understanding that I was poor. Hmong differ from the stereotype of Asian Americans being high-achieving or educated or rich. College was never on my mind, not a priority in the family. I, I believe everyone deserves to go to college. You know, everyone has some opportunity to go, and everyone, everyone deserves to go. The idea that anyone can go to college has been under scrutiny lately, with a recently uncovered college admission scandal and the ongoing lawsuit against Harvard about affirmative action. I think the first central question is, who deserves to go to college? And the second one is, what are our colleges and universities for? Mariah Balingan is a national education reporter for The Post. If colleges and universities are really committed to things like socioeconomic mobility, then things like affirmative action and taking a close look at who's getting into college, those things are really, really important. A federal judge is still weighing whether Harvard racially discriminated against Asian-American applicants who argued that the university used a quota in its decision-making. They basically said that Asian-Americans face a quote-unquote Asian penalty. They have to score higher in order to get admitted to Harvard. And of course, Harvard denies all of this. They say that race is one of many factors that they look at and that they don't use quotas. The plaintiffs in the lawsuit argue against unfair standards for Asian-American students. But Mariah says that the umbrella use of the term Asian-Americans can be problematic. As an education reporter, I had been following the Harvard lawsuit quite closely. And I'd been reading a lot of stories about affirmative action. And I was getting kind of tired of reading the voices mostly of East Asians on both sides of the case and you rarely, if ever, heard from Southeast Asians or Filipinos. Um, my father's Filipino. He's from the Philippines. And I was just getting really frustrated that I wasn't seeing voices from my own community represented in the affirmative action debate. And, you know, they don't necessarily fall on one side or the other, but our experiences and the experiences of a lot of other Southeast Asians were not being really represented. And so you decided to go back to your hometown and talk to some of the students who as you say, don't fall into that box. Right. So I grew up in Sacramento, California, and there's no such thing as just being Asian in Sacramento. So we have like long established Chinese and Japanese families. We have Filipinos. We have more recent immigrants like the Hmong, which is who I decided to write about. These are refugees who came from Laos and spent a lot of time in camps in Thailand and then eventually arrived in the United States with very little resources. So when you talk to some of the Hmong students about their experiences with high school and trying to get into college, what did they say? So one of the things that they told me was that 
they have a lot more obligations than do most your average American teenager. These kids, and they are still kids, 16 and 17 years old, because of Hmong culture and because of the strongly kind of communal culture that exists within the Hmong community, they're often raising younger siblings. You know, they're already seen as adults. They have to earn money to help their families. On top of that, some of the kids I talked to, their parents never went to high school. And they're at least, you know, 10 or 15 years ago, it would not have been unusual to meet somebody whose parents had never been to school at all. And so I'm talking no formal education whatsoever. And so their children, by the time they reach kindergarten, already have more formal education than their parents do. So these kids don't see themselves as part of the, like, model minority stereotype. Right. I mean, they certainly know about that stereotype, but they see themselves as totally outside of that box. They don't necessarily do well in math and science. They aren't scoring particularly high on the SATs and the ACTs, which are tests that we know closely correlate with wealth, in addition to a child's intellectual abilities. A lot of them didn't grow up speaking English at home, so their English is not great. And they don't necessarily view themselves automatically as quote-unquote college material. Somebody has to tell them because they just had never thought about going to college at all. So what do these students have to do with the Harvard lawsuit? So what's interesting about them is that Sacramento is about 90 minutes to two hours from the Bay Area. And a lot of Asian Americans in the Bay Area are actually financially backing this lawsuit. So it's interesting that, you know, just two hours apart, you get really radically different experiences and perspectives on affirmative action. So these are both groups of students that grew up in Northern California, and one group is helping to finance and driving this fight against affirmative action, and the other group is just not really being heard from. How do these kids see their own experiences fitting into the college admissions process? So one of the things that I think people don't realize about the Harvard lawsuit is not only are they asking for the court to rule any kind of consideration of race in college admissions unconstitutional, they're asking for an injunction against Harvard in which it would create an admissions process where the admissions committee would not know the race of the applicant at all. It's not clear how that would work, but you could easily imagine a process that would basically explicitly tell people you are not to write about your race in your admissions essay. And the essay is really an opportunity for somebody to explain the context in which they grew up, explain the kind of cultural and racial barriers they might have faced to talk about their neighborhood. So I asked the kids, what would it be like if you had to write an admissions essay and if they told you you couldn't write about being Hmong? And for these kids, it was just impossible to fathom them describing their upbringing, describing who they were and what they cared about without talking about being Hmong. And so they just felt like an admissions process that omitted that would be wholly incomplete and would be really unfair to them. Is there a relationship between this lawsuit at Harvard about affirmative action and what we've seen recently in the admission scandal that was uncovered by the Department of Justice in which all these wealthy kids were, their parents were cheating to get them into school? You know, one thing that people are pointing out is that even when the system is working precisely as it should, it 
gives a lot of advantages to wealthy students. Obviously, these parents used illicit means to do that. But there are all kinds of ways in which wealth can essentially make up for deficiencies in your application. You know, whether that's getting New York City's best SAT tutor or getting an internship at your father's company. There's just all sorts of ways that the system is tilted towards wealthy students. And what one critic of this whole process pointed out is the Department of Justice, the Trump administration, and repeated Supreme Court cases. There's been all the scrutiny of affirmative action, but there's been no scrutiny or very little scrutiny of a college admissions process that systematically advantages white wealthy students. So if the heart of all of this is this question of who gets to go to college, what does both the Harvard lawsuit and this scandal tell us about about that question? I think, and as a journalist, I hope that it's going to force colleges and universities to be a lot more transparent about their admissions process. The Harvard lawsuit has given us a lot of insight into how Harvard makes its decisions. But there are a lot of things that as a reporter, and I'm sure as, you know, parents as consumers and children as applicants want to know about things like, well, how do you make decisions about legacies? How big of a role does legacy play? How big of a role does being an athlete play? And I think if colleges and universities are more transparent about their processes, it will start to help restore the faith in them. Because I think what both the lawsuit and the scandal have done is really made people disheartened and disillusioned about this process being anywhere close to a meritocracy. If the wealthy can buy their way in and if, you know, if these plaintiffs are right, that that Harvard can arbitrarily discriminate against Asian Americans. People have, and I've read uh, actually emails from parents who say, you know, what, is, what does it mean for my kid if they're not Asian American and they're not wealthy? Does that mean that they'll never get into Harvard? So I think there's a lot of people who are really disillusioned by the college admissions process who are hoping for more transparency. And again, as a journalist who's always biased towards more information, I too am hoping for more transparency. And that way we can we can help evaluate whether these processes are really fair and whether the processes align with what the college or university is trying to do, you know, in terms of its place in society. Mariah Belingit covers national education for The Post. And now, one more thing. This week is the 80th anniversary of opera singer Marian Anderson's historic performance on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial. This is a story that I love, and I always find it crazy that it's not more well-known. It's a great story. I don't know why you wouldn't want to tell it more often. That's Jonathan Holloway. He's a professor of African-American history, and I first heard the story from him when I was a 19-year-old sophomore in college sitting in his class. Marian Anderson is one of the great opera singers in our country's history. And she was black, which, of course, in America in the 1930s, meant that she faced relentless opposition to a career in classical music. Remember, this is a woman who couldn't make a living in the United States because of her race. And so she moved to Europe, where people loved her. 
she was becoming really quite a star in the European opera circuit. The great conductor Toscanini referred to her as one of the great gifts on the planet when it comes to opera. Specifically, what he said was, quote, What I have heard today, one is privileged to hear only once in a hundred years. And she was invited back to the United States by professors of music at Howard University in Washington, D.C. on an annual basis, starting around the mid-30s. In the U.S., she'd gotten kind of rediscovered. More and more people wanted to attend her recitals. There was a greater demand for her in terms of audience size, and Howard simply didn't have the space. So they tried to find a bigger venue where she could perform. But black theaters in D.C. weren't large enough. They tried to hold a concert in the auditorium of a white high school, but that didn't work out. And finally, they went to the First Lady of the United States. Eleanor Roosevelt, who was referred to then, and this is the phrasing of the time, a friend of the race. They appealed to her, couldn't you do something to help out? And one thing leads to another. It looks like Marian Anderson would be able to sing at Daughters of American Revolution Constitution Hall, really the grandest space in D.C., However, Constitution Hall, managed again by the Daughters of the American Revolution, really had a strict racial policy. A policy of no blacks allowed. And no black people in the audience, no black people on the stage. And in a very famous column, Eleanor Roosevelt, who was a very famous columnist, expressed her embarrassment at the DAR and relinquished her membership. And still the DAR refused to budge. So Eleanor Roosevelt went to Harold Ickes, the U.S. Secretary of the Interior. And together they hatched a plan, since Harold Ickes controlled federal lands, to host Marian Anderson for a concert, standing on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial in the shadow of the Great Emancipator. And they do it on Easter Sunday. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. We're speaking to you from the steps of the Lincoln Memorial in the nation's capital, from which point the National Broadcasting Company brings you a song recital by the gifted Marian Anderson, considered by music critics throughout the world as possessing a most outstanding contralto voice. Now, the concert's amazing for lots of different reasons. One, on the day of the concert... The United States Park Police officially estimate the attendance at over 75,000. Is that a lot of people for the time? I mean, not to offend opera lovers out there, that's a remarkable number for opera or for anybody. And... Hundreds of thousands, at minimum, were listening to this live on the radio. Marian Anderson is singing this public concert at the Lincoln Memorial because she was unable to get an auditorium to accommodate the tremendous audience that wished to hear her. And when people get there, there is no sign saying this section for whites only or colored section. It was completely integrated. And that was jaw-dropping. Miss Anderson will sing from a stage built on the steps of this impressive memorial to America's Civil War president, looking out over the beautiful reflecting pool to the Washington Monument. And then walking out onto this platform comes Marian Anderson. She looked regal. She's dressed in a grand mink coat. She comes to the microphone. She made no comment about the injustice that brought everyone to that moment. And then simply begins to sing... My country, tis of thee. It was.
was a silk glove slap in the face to the daughters of the American Revolution and a very dignified, restrained and eloquent declaration. This is my country too. Jonathan Holloway is a professor of history and African-American studies, and now he's the provost of Northwestern University. The Washington Post story about the 80th anniversary of this concert was written by Gillian Brockell. You can find a link to her story at postreports.com. That's it for today's show. Thanks for listening. We'd love to hear your thoughts on the stories from today's episode. Share your comments on Twitter with the hashtag PostReports. And you can also follow me at Martine Powers to hear and see more behind the scenes from the show. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post. 